It's 1.05 p.m. and you're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Uh, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. During that time, we'll be unpacking some of those top stories from around the country and the continent. Um, we'll also be calling out to Daily Maverick reporters Becky Simelane and Simon Allison. But firstly, I'm joined in studio by my good friend, Gashwell Brooks. <laughs> Welcome to the show, man. How are you doing, Vert? Good, good. I saw you smiling at the cricket outside before we came in. No, some brilliant stuff, eh? Yeah. What was this eventual score? I think 211 or something to that effect. 211, and we ended up on 400 and some odd. Look, it was a sort of thrashing. Okay. That's the point. I mean, I know nothing about cricket, but 400 sounds like a lot, of, a lot of things Shocker. to have. Look, this, yeah. is a good, this has been a high-scoring okay. cricket World Cup. And um, I, uh, you know, I remember that I think they were staying on about 295 the last time I checked, uh, because obviously some of us work late at night, you know, and then we have to sleep during the day, so we can't really watch the cricket. But well done to the boys; they they uh, thoroughly thrashed uh, Ireland in this one. <laughs> there we go for your cricket analysis. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now bringing it back back to what we'll be chopping up today. Um, I really want to talk firstly about the, the xenophobic attacks we've been seeing around the country. Um, it started with what we were hoping was an isolated incident in, in Snake Park, but we've seen it slowly spread around the country to Zola, Protea Glen, and even the Western Cape and Limpopo. Mm. Um, I mean, Gashwell, I mean, what's, what's your sense on some of the underlying factors that we're seeing that seems to be commonplace in a lot of townships around the country? You know what, I actually did a, a, a piece on this one about a month back when yeah. we saw those initial attacks, uh, the ones coming out of Snake Park. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I don't have it open in front of me, but no, I, it was something called along the lines of, but we have a choice in this matter, right? And the reason why I said why I entitled it uh, that is because uh, the narrative that I got from, you know, and, and I mean, I do radio talk radio myself, yeah. so obviously I'm in the fortunate position whereby you hear from people on the ground on a day-to-day basis as to why these incidents actually occur. Yeah. Um, and then the, the common na- narrative was basically that, well, uh, we're not happy with their business practices. They've killed off businesses in the township, you know, and the list continues. But there's just one central question behind this whole thing. I know that as a consumer, I have a choice in the matter. Yeah. So let's assume that I don't want a business in my neighborhood mm-hmm. or I don't want to support a neighborhood, I have a particular b- a business. It's very simple, boycott the darn thing. There's no need for you to go and run and burn and kill and do the types of things that we've seen and loot. Um, not in, not to say that there's valid reasons being given yeah. for why these businesses need to be uh, boycotted or, you know, they shouldn't be in, in, in our townships. Um, yes, there seems to be a feeling of helplessness. It's almost like uh, the foreign shop owners are being unfair. They're grouping together to purchase they are sort of to purchase their goods. Mm, mm. They're they're colluding in terms of how they set prices. What they're doing is so unfair. It's almost as if the local shop owners have have can't match or do the same things. Or it's uh, almost like they can't do it. Kings, it's, <laughs> it borders on ridiculous the reasons yeah. that come through. I mean, you've mentioned some of them. For example, yeah. that no, they have lower prices. Why do they have lower prices? Because they club together yeah, when they go to bulk, the wholesalers. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's basic business practice. Yeah. Anyone wants a discount, right? So, and, and uh, I'm sorry, if, if I'm a savvy businessman and I'm yeah. able to negotiate a, a discount, it's not my fault. That's how it works. That's how business works. It's supposed to be competitive. And for goodness sake, you're in the townships, it's supposed to be cheaper. Because guess what? That's where our poor live. And our poor want bread at a rand cheaper. They want their milk at two rand cheaper. 
not obviously you trying to make uh, super profits. I mean, some of the other reasons that were listed was also just frankly ridiculous. Um, issues like, no, well, they open up earlier. Um, and close later. I mean, for goodness sake, that just means that they work hard. They don't employ South Africans, they employ family members. Well, guess what? <laughs> if I start my business, um, you know, Mikey is seven months old, my, my son yeah. is he's seven months old, so obviously I can't employ him yet, but <laughs> the moment he can see over the counter, chances are he's going to have to stand, he's you know, he'll have to be in there. So I just tend to think that, um, you've, you've, you've actually hit the nail on the head there, uh, Kingsley, in your analysis, is that we do s- suffer from a sense of victimization. It's everyone else's fault yeah. except our own. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's shocking. It's, it's just something that we really need to get over. Yeah, I think what worries me is that we, we keep seeing a resurgence. So it seems to be something that every year or every two years comes back. So wh- whatever measures are in place, either from a government perspective or from a community social cohesion perspective, we're just not getting it right. Sure. Because sure. one thing you can know for sure is every year, every two years, there's going to be a, a resurgence of, of, of these uh, issues. But you see, this is where I think that they, that we need to go back to and ask ourselves why this actually mm-hmm. does happen. And I think in, a society where there's so much inequality and there's so much unemployment and there's so much poverty. It's, it's almost to be expected where people feel that the moment someone else has an economic advantage and seems to be thriving in a largely poor area, there is going to be some type of resentment. And I think the one thing that we can't get away from is the, uh, is the notion that a lot of these shop owners have relationships with the very same people that loot and burn their shops. These people come and buy I mean, from They know them. each other. Sure. They know each other for, for years and years, yeah. you know, up to a decade where they've been doing business with each other. And this is the situation. Anyway, I found the title to that piece. It's yeah. called Believe It or Not, South Africa, You Have the Power yeah. of Choice. And that is just speaking to the idea that, look, yeah, we're not that helpless. We're not that, um, you know, you know, where we're just sitting back and we're at the mercy of these uh, foreign shop owners. It's, it's absolute nonsense. That I, mean, I mean, that's one thing that, that, that I've been wondering is that, is that, I mean, what happens after? These are people that know each other, there's relationships with the, with the shop owners and the suppliers and the people in community. And perhaps you have one day of, of mob mentality and, and things are burnt and people are hurt. But what happens the next day when people I have can to tell look you. each other in the eye? Yeah, tell I me. can tell you. Tell you, get, you get a phone call from someone at one in the morning yeah. saying that there are people wandering the streets because they couldn't buy their basic necessities. Because that for me is just plain on how ridiculous it becomes. Because this is what is driving the township economy. Right, And then you go burn and loot and get rid of all the shops. And then guess what? Tomorrow you don't have a place to buy a loaf of bread from. And tomorrow you don't have a place to go and buy your loose tea bags or whatever else is required. And this is for me what actually ticks me off about yeah. this scenario. You know what? Let's, let's, let's go live to uh, Daily Maverick reporter Becky Simelane. Is he not yet? We're struggling to get Becky right now. Um, okay, so let, Gasha, let's keep chopping it up before, no, for before sure, we for get sure, a man. hold of Becky. So, I mean, what, what I, what I also want to avoid doing is, is dismissing, is mi- dismissing the reasons of the people in, in communities and saying, listen, stop being silly. It's tough shit. Get on with it. Yeah. So how do we, how do we, how do we be sympathetic to the issues of unemployment that we've been having in the country, the issues of inequality that we've been having in the country? So how do we find that balance between, between not taking the reasons as valid, but also not dismissing them as nonsense and saying, listen, as a country, we, we're having unemployment issues, we're having poverty issues, and this could be an outlet for some of those things that we're failing on as a nation. But Kingsley, you can take it a step further. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, for me, the first and foremost and the most important thing is that surely government at the very top needs yeah. to start taking responsibility for this type of thing. First of all, making an open and clear statement that, look, you can't go and just because someone is from another country decide to go loot and do whatever the heck you feel I mean, like doing. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, then you can't have a minister then responding. I mean, the president was completely silent 
agreement on the issue. Number one. Number two, Lindiwe Zulu tells us that, well, the foreigners need to tell us what's their secrets. I mean, really? Really? Is that your response? I mean, that was, quite, this that was quite worrying. So, guys, well, let me hold you there. We finally got a hold of Becky. Uh, we have Becky, Becky Simelane, our Daily Maverick reporter. Becky, how are you? Becky, are you here? Hello. Hi, okay, Becky. How Becky, you? how are you? I'm all right. Good, Let's good. Go. So we finally got a hold of you. So Becky, you've been doing a lot of reporting um, live from a lot of the townships where we've been experiencing um, some of this violence. So Becky, I wanted you to give us a, a, a sense of what, what are the community members saying are their reasons for this violence against foreign shop owners? Sorry, can you repeat that for me? Um, what, what reasons are the community members giving for this violence against uh, the foreign shop owners? What about community members? Sorry, Becky, you seem to have a pretty bad line. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear can you. Can you now. hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. So I'm saying you're in you're in these communities where we're seeing this violence. What what are the reasons that the community members are giving for 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 the violence against the foreigners? Uh, I mean, local people are local people are just involved themselves in the violence. So you 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 can't really say that they are doing anything because they are involved themselves. Um, oh, uh, Becky, sorry, Becky. We seem yeah. to be having a really, really bad line here. So I'll see if our producers can call you back, and we'll see if we can we can get a better line. But mm-hmm. thanks, Becky. Oh. I'm sorry, Gashwa. Well, you brought up some of the issues that that we've had from sort of the top top brass in 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 government, and mm-hmm. uh, and Lindiwe Zulu saying, "Listen, these foreigners can't just exist here. They must tell us the secrets to their business. Our number one priority is to the citizens of the country, and not to these foreigners." Exactly. It it fosters it it reinforces people's attitudes because yes, she didn't come out and she said that look, you're well done, guys, for looting and burning and. Uh, you know, basically committing daylight robbery. But in as much as that is the case, uh, the the point though is, is that we can't fall back into a narrative whereby we're saying that as a result of their presence in the country, there's obviously a problem. They, this is what's causing e- economic disparity. I think what we really need to sit down and think about, um, and this is the point uh, that that I'm trying to drive home on a regular basis, and people think that I'm discounting poverty and yeah. inequality and all the yeah, other stuff. Yeah, I think that's that my worry here. Yeah, so it's very simple. We live in the year 2015. Yeah. You're living in a global society. Yep. Obviously, South Africa is seen as the land of milk and honey in the, in, on the African continent, never mind SEDEC. So people are going to stream to this country. And maybe it's about time that we learned from everyone else, what is it that they're doing and make, uh, that's making their businesses successful and then take it from there. Okay, so you're thinking of just a really practical approach and saying, listen, we're not discounting unemployment, we're not, dis- we're not discounting poverty. But this is this is a free market economy we're talking Dude, about. You can match anything they're doing. Dude, I'm going to put it yeah. as basic as yeah. this. If I arrive in South Africa with two rand to my name yeah. and those clothes on my back, and within a year I have a little stand where I'm selling loose rand. Yeah, and you've got and tens sweets. of thousands and like in revenue of, that you're running through. Yeah. And, no, and then after that I have a little yeah. tuck shop, right? And and who do I rent the tuck shop from? Yeah. Where do I run my tuck shop from? Usually a South African property owner, yeah. right? Whether it be an RDP house or some house in the township, it's a South African that I'm paying rent to. The question is, maybe we need to ask ourselves, how did this person actually embark on their journey? Yeah. Where they've Left Al Shabab controlled parts of, parts of uh, started Somalia. From nothing. Started from nothing, and now they they have a living. For goodness sake, I mean, and then we just discount it with the usual. You know, it's easy to come up with excuses. No, it's drug money. Uh, you know, they 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 have unfair business practices. This, that, and the other. No, it's nonsense. Maybe we need to start. You know, buckling up. I'm sounding more and more like Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> 
I mean, that's something that, that I love what you brought that up. So we'll be talking soon to Brilliant Nyambi of, of Africa Unite. Um, mm-hmm. And they've been doing some social cohesion stuff. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. But I mean, I, I really worry when we have top members in government saying, we don't really have a responsibility to these foreigners when they've been given asylum, when they've been accepted and been given refugee status. Not not all foreign shop owners are on that status, but a lot of them are. So once we do that, surely we do have a responsibility to make sure that they're not being killed in their shops because we've accepted them and said, listen, you can seek refuge in our country. But beyond that, if you say to someone that, look, yeah, I'm going to give you refuge in the country, you have one of two choices generally after that. You're either going to become through the welfare system you're going to have to pay them grants and you'll yeah. have to feed them. Look, human beings need to be fed and they need shelter. You know those basic things that you and I subsist on? Yeah. Well, everyone else needs that stuff too. So you have a choice on whether you're going to be uh, sponsoring them on a perpetual basis or are you actually going to take a step back and say that, you know what, if people are honestly and fairly economically active, isn't that a good thing? Rather, you know, encourage people to run their businesses and do what they're doing as opposed to having this current situation where we're saying, well, we don't really owe them anything and they need to tell us their secrets to be able to run their businesses here. Okay. Absolute nonsense. I mean, I like that you point that up. Surely we should be encouraging that because, as you mentioned, the shops they're renting are from South Africans. Exactly. Contrary to what you heard, they are employing a lot of South Africans. Exactly. And they're contributing a lot to the township economy. So surely we should be saying, listen, like a big congratulations to be able to come here on asylum or refugee status and being able to uplift yourself to being able to be economically independent. Surely that's, that's a great thing. And, and, and there's some part of it, uh, you know, there's some part of me that actually gets a bit annoyed um, when we talk about the asylum and the refugee status. Not every single foreigner in this country is here as an asylum seeker yeah. or as a refugee. People move, tons of South Africans have moved off to Australia yeah. and to Britain. To seek a better life, a better opportunity, economic, and, yeah, and, and it's okay for them to do and with that. Your visa, you should be able to do right. that. It's okay for them to yeah. do that. But then, the moment we talk about Zimbabwean people or Somali people Somali or Pakistani, Pakistani people, then whoa, yeah. this is not acceptable. You know, we don't want them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Gashla, I finally got brilliant on here. So, we have Brilliant Nyambi, uh, the coordinator of Africa Unite. Brilliant, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Sir? Good, good. Now, Brilliant, you're running a really interesting project. Could you tell us a bit about the the social cohesion work you're doing with Africa Unite? Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so, basically, Africa Unite it started in 2001 in New Crossroad Township here in Cape Town. This was a result of uh, local young people who were concerned about many issues that are happening in the township, including them just seeing new people or what we call refugees coming into their community and just seeing that these people are making it in life and we even do not understand where they are coming from. So there were a lot of xenophobic tendencies during that time and these young people decided that let's just come together and work together with these people. And this was a group of local young people who then decided that let's form Africa Unite. So that was in 2001. Oh, fantastic. So what kind of like yes. programs do you actually run to try and bridge the gap between the foreign shop owners and the locals in the community? Yes, so... Uh, most programs that we run are run by young people. Yep. And the main programs that we do is promoting human rights because Africa and I generally, we are a human rights and youth empowerment organization. We work with citizens, refugees, migrants, and uh, all the people, including South Africa, to prevent conflicts and end social cohesion. So our programs, we have what we call the Human Rights Peer Education Program, where we train young people from different backgrounds, South Africans and non-South Africans, to go out and promote human rights, raise awareness on human rights in their communities, and also to fight for the challenges in their communities. But we do not want to exclude anyone from this. We want young people coming from different backgrounds 
and saying these are our challenges. They are not excluding anyone. If we are part of the community, and let's work together to raise human rights awareness. So this is one of the programs that we run, and we also run what we call the skill sharing session. Because I think you understand the challenges that we have in most townships in South Africa, that uh, most African refugees, when they settle in the townships, they quickly make it. And that's the reality that we know that is currently happening. Like, they go in the township, especially the Somalis, they quickly uh, establish their shops. And within a few months, you see that they're not not driving cars. And sometimes it, it, it fuels, like, jealousy and because... Locals have been staying there for years, they've been struggling, the government is not doing enough for them, but another person, an outsider, comes and settles down. So sometimes it creates jealousy, but we have to understand also the dynamics that in these African countries, some of them, they caught uh, independence earlier and they were able to get mostly education. But the most important thing is when you establish businesses in townships, it's not always about going to school, but discipline. We need also mm-hmm. these African foreigners to share some of their skills. Because Somalis are not really educated, most of them, but they are disciplined enough to know that a business needs you to save up money. A business needs you to be committed, not to be going out, drinking, and being irresponsible. Then you will spend all your profit. So the skills sharing, we are saying that those refugees who are living in the township can also share some of their skills, not those educational skills, but some technical skills that are really important in forming up your business. In sharing some of their stories, to say, I come from Somalia, there was war, I, free, I, I had to flee, I left my parents, only my parents were killed, I traveled all the way and I arrived in South Africa without even money, but I made it. I, ma- I managed to save up five rand, put a money in, and at the end of the year, I started my own business. Just to encourage South Africans also to learn how a business can be started, because for years we have been waiting for the government to deliver, but they're not delivering. So we want also our young people to be innovative, our young South Africans to be innovative, not to be xenophobic, because it won't solve anything. It won't. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a great project you're running. So I wanted to ask, are you, are you finding that the community is receptive to these kind of dialogue sessions? Do they want to actually talk to the foreign shop owners? Yes. Uh, you know, it's really interesting how the local people are interested in these issues. Because what comes out is not only a matter of a question of business, because... What comes out in those dialogues mostly is a question of myths. For example, there is a belief that, uh, which came out in most dialogues, that Somali people are being funded by faceless people who are, uh, like the Muslim community, they are supporting them to form the businesses when they arrive in South Africa. And some were saying that they are capitalists, uh, the white capitalists, if I may say, who are supporting them to form businesses. And some were even saying that the United Nations High Commissioners to or refugees is supporting them with small loans to start businesses, which is not even true. Oh, wow. So, so, they, so you're finding these myths in the township that people think yes. foreign, like these foreign shop owners are supported even by the UN to start up their business? Yes. yes. Uh, if I can just ask you quickly, brilliant. I mean, there's a common yes. narrative that I've also heard where uh, people claim that their governments even sponsor them. Um, I've heard yes, that the, exactly. that the exactly. government, you know, it's Pakistani, mm. um, the mm. Pakistani mm. government, the Somali government. Mm. So mm. all these myths get dispelled. Yes, they all, the, especially even the local government is being accused by by the, our community members that why is it you're supporting uh, refugees and foreigners before you support your own people? But the reality is the, South Africa is, is democratic and the, the approach they took to refugees, instead of putting refugees in concentration camps, they said let them go inside and let them integrate with the local people. But however, 
we that's the only support we can give to refugees documentation and then integrating with local people but right. after that each one sees is or her own way out. I mean, yeah, that's how capitalism works, right? I mean, it's it's every yeah. really businessman for himself, and it's and it's and yeah. the fittest really survives. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant. One thing I want to know is, are you seeing a, are you seeing an impact or a ripple effect in some of these townships that you're working in? Are you seeing? I know so, social cohesion is not necessarily an easy thing to measure. Yeah, are you yeah, seeing, yeah, yeah. Are you seeing the impact of the, of your workshops in the townships? Are you seeing better relations between communities? Yeah. I, I, there's quite a, a lot of impact that, are, that that we are seeing as yeah. Africa United. Yeah. Because if I may give you a case study, Please. you see last week in uh, Maricana, yes. Philippi, yes. there was some looting which happened. We started in Belfort and continued in Philippi. And if you read the article in the Cape Times, Cape Times newspaper, a guy called Polani Georgia, who tried to stop everything, he's a local South African, he tried to stop everything and calming down the business people. He is part of the people that was in our skill sharing session, and now understands the dynamics behind uh, the life of Somali people, the life of refugees at large. Wow! So you've seen a person who's been part of your programs and is yes. now in a, you know in a different province and is carrying on that insight into listening. In, in, exactly, exactly. So, but however, I really think that this should spread in other towns, cities, because this is not only. Uh, problem which is synonymous with Cape Town, but this is a challenge which is national and for long now it has not been addressed. And to be honest, you can't just go in the community and say, let's talk about xenophobia. No one will want to listen to you, but let's talk about sharing skills. Let's talk about working together. I think that's the best way of approaching our community. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Sorry, Gashwa. No, no, I'm actually, um, I'm thoroughly impressed with what you're doing there, brilliant. Uh, just a quick one there for you. I mean, um, the minister came out and she said something that I thought was actually very unbecoming. She, she, she said something along the lines of that the foreign, foreigners need to share their skills with us to be able to subsist yes. in this country. Um, yes. what has the backlash been like from local authorities? Number one. I mean, have local authorities actually been, um, supportive of the work that you're doing? Um, and, and second to that, uh-huh. this is this a this is not a perpetuation of that attitude, is it not so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting because uh, mo- most of our leaders, when when like violence erupts, they tend to take a stance where they want to integrate people. But to be honest, it's not been really there's not been a really good relationship between our leaders and the work that we're doing, especially when we talk about work which involves. Uh, the local government and refugees. Mm. They say it on, on on national media that no, they should be social cohesion. I, I also saw it. The, the minister was commenting in the events. Just laughed on my own. I said, if only people knew how difficult it is to unlock these guys to be involved. Yeah. Because really, rather for me, it fuels more uh, like xenophobic tendencies on the locals because nothing mm. is being done. They just say it and they leave it. But it's high time they also become engaged. Because these are the people who are leading the country. And if, if everyone sees how also important it is for them to be involved, then the, the communities can be involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely brilliant. I mean, brilliant. I mean, is there a way we can support? Could you just give us some contact details for people who want to get in touch with Africa Unite and, and keep helping you do the work you do? Okay, yeah. Um, first of all, for those maybe who would like to donate or would like to just uh, send some funds to Africa Unite, what we have, uh, we have our website that is www.africaunite.org.za. 
Okay, perfect. Thanks a lot, yes, brilliant. We have, we'll make we sure have, to tweet your, your contact details so people can get a hold of you directly. Yes. Um, yes thanks we a lot. Have a, Sorry, yes? We have, a, we have a PayPal there. Yeah. And we also have our Facebook page called Africa Unite, Umoja wa Africa. And also maybe for our contact details, phone number for those who would like to call in, it's 021-461-6551. Okay, perfect. Thanks a lot. We'll make sure to, to tweet those details. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on the show. And please, please keep up the good work you're doing. Okay, thank you very much for asking me also. Okay, perfect. Thank Thanks, you. Sir. I mean, this okay. reminds me of, of an article I read where we had Hajira Mohammed, who's, a, who's one of the, the shop owners in Zamimpilo, and she's watching her shop burn down, and, and she's interviewed, and the first thing she says is, what are we as a community going to do to get better? This is because of poverty, their social and emotional issues here at play. How do we build up the townships? And this is somebody who's just seen her shop being burned down. And that really touched me in that... Even the foreigners are seeing that, listen, this is not personal. There's something at play here. How do we, as a, as a, as one big township community and a South African community, you know, get better and move past this? I don't know. It, uh, I think that there is an evolution of the mind that's needed. And I don't want to sound all Steve Biko like, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, you know, sound as if I'm above the people yeah. and I'm evolved and everyone else is not. But really, there is an evolution that's needed here, uh, Kingsley. It's very simple. Um, I do think that what has happened in South Africa, and, and I think part of the reason why we faced with the situation is, is that a lot of ambitious promises were made in 1994 and, and from that point onwards. And then South Africa sort of became this country where we will look after the people. That's what government has constantly yeah. been saying. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these uh, people coming into the country are coming from countries where they don't have that privilege. Yeah. They don't have a government that gives it. Quite frankly, if, if I'm coming from Somalia, do you think that they give a damn? There's no, that's why I'm shocked at the fact that there's this belief that uh, the Somali government is going to fund these businesses, you know, little tuck shops in Soweto and Alex. It's impossible. Somalia hardly has any control over its, you know, over that part, over the Horn of Africa. Why on earth would they bother? Financing individuals coming into South Africa with little talk shop. I mean, I love that you brought up sort of macro level because I'm just about to go to to Katie Wilkinson who works at Africa Check. Um, Katie, welcome to the show. Hello, Kate. We are not doing great today on the phones, are we? Hello. <laughs> ah, there we go, Kate Wilkinson from Africa Check. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's I mean it's a pleasure. So, Kate, you've done some some great work. Um, looking at the sort of micro level about about foreigners in South Africa. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions. So, I mean, after doing some fact checking, I mean, could you give us some of the, the the facts about you know how many foreigners actually are in the country? Are they actually stealing on the all the jobs? Are they are they running the locals out of the out of the tuck shops in townships? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the the rhetoric and the talk around foreigners in South Africa and whether they're stealing jobs is based mostly on fear, paranoia, and misconception. And if you really want to understand the situation, you do have to dig a bit deeper and look at the data. And when you do, you often find that people's beliefs don't match with the reality of the situation. For example, only about 4% of our labor force are international migrants. So if you look at what that means in South Africa, it means that only about 1.2 million foreigners are working and trying to make a living in the country. Wow, so I mean, so that, that really, that, that, that really is at odds with this idea that there's just, there's just millions of, of, of foreigners and they're taking all the jobs and running all the shops. If it's only, I mean, you're talking about 4% here. Definitely. And what, what is even more interesting is we find that 
foreigners are also more likely to find themselves in positions of precarious unemployment. So often a foreigner is more likely to take a job which a South African won't take or take a job where there are no benefits or there's no formal contract, which leaves them actually quite vulnerable um, as they work and try to earn a living. Okay, so so, so they're taking jobs which no one else is doing. So I can imagine that that would have a net impact on the economy. Hey, Kate? Yeah, definitely. But but I think um, something which is even more, a myth which is even more important to yeah, bust yeah. is this myth which I think we saw flare up uh, um, during the recent xenophobic looting and attacks that we saw is that this myth that foreigners somehow are dominating the informal sector of the economy yeah. and that they really are, they're running all the spaza shops um, they're pushing locals out of the informal economy, mm. and that's really where a lot of South Africans make their living and, and, and earn their money. But recent studies have shown, and you have to realize that quite a lot of these studies are quite focused. They can't be generalized to the whole of South Africa. Okay. But there was a, a recent study conducted in Johannesburg, and it found that in Johannesburg, only two out of ten of, two out of, 10 of the businesses were being run by foreigners. And that's in the informal sector. So although there's this perception that really the informal market is being flooded and is being controlled by foreigners, the data really shows a more nuanced picture, which shows that there are less foreigners working in South Africa than most people think. They're often in positions of precarious employment, and they're definitely not dominating the informal sector. I mean, that paints a, a very different picture from what we're hearing on the ground, which is um, people thinking that, that foreigners are coming in at an advantage. So thinking that they have this sort of mythical funding and that there's so many of them and they, they're better advantaged to pull together. I mean, you're painting a picture of there being very few foreigners relative to locals and of them being in, in you know, in, in, in a disadvantaged position of taking, you know, precarious forms of employment and, you know, and being less likely to have stable, stable employment. Yes, definitely. And I, I think we also have to realize that, and this is what studies have shown, is yeah. that although foreigners, you know, there will be foreigners who, who may in certain instances take jobs which other South Africans would have taken. Yes. I mean, there will always be individual cases where that happens. Mm. But it, in general, as a whole, foreigners actually contribute quite a lot to our country and to our society and economy. They, well, for one, they're providing jobs. Um, researchers found that, found that foreigners are more likely to be either self-employed or employers compared to local South Africans. So they're more likely to be creating jobs than their South African counterparts. They also are found to be paying rent to local South Africans. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the shops which they operate in, they're paying rent and they are stimulating that local economy. Like all South Africans, they pay that. And in the case of spaza shops or local corner shops, they also are providing affordable and convenient goods for people who live in that community. Mm. I mean, so it sounds like they're really boosting the township economy and that they're really an important part of, of, of paying rent to the locals, of employing the locals and, and making sure that certain goods and services are available. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's where the more nuanced picture comes in. Yeah. I think that it's very easy for us, obviously, to, to conduct this research and talk very broadly yeah. about you know, the role that foreigners play and how it can be positive, mm. but the, 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 how that works out in communities obviously is a lot more complex. And like I said, a lot of that paranoia and the, the xenophobia is fueled by this misconception, um, this belief that, that South Africa is being flooded by um, international migrants who are stealing jobs, 
um, from local South Africans. And a lot of the research which we looked at and which is available on our website has only recently come, been released and has come to light. And it's only now that we can actually look at the situation, look at the data, and look at this more nuanced picture where foreigners aren't just stealing jobs, they're also facing challenges and in some cases, you know, helping our economy and our society. Uh, Kate, it's uh, Gershwell here. As, as always, you know, well done to Africa Check on the data, you know, and, and this is important because if this data gets out into society in general, then I guess a lot of these myths would be dispelled. But the, I know this is a bit of a tough one, but I mean, who start, where do these myths actually originate from? Because they're so broadly accepted. I mean, I've, I've been having tons and tons of conversations around this issue, uh, you know, in the public space, and these myths is, uh, you know, they, they're commonplace. This is what people believe. It's almost as if these myths have become fact uh, in many of the communities yeah. that we're talking about. Definitely, and I think not only do myths become fact, but they also fuel, as we've seen, um, violence and xenophobia, which can ruin lives and in some cases take lives. Mm. Um, but I think, like I said, it's, it's, it's one thing to conduct research and, and put out these findings, but um, what we were told when we were looking into this is that while you can say that, you know, there are only 1.2 million international migrants working in South Africa and, and earning a living, if you're living in a community where there happen to be quite a few local shops or informal traders who are foreigners, yeah. your perception of the world could be skewed because of your, your local environment. Um, mm. And hopefully by, by, you know, publishing this data, putting it out there, obviously it's not going to change perceptions overnight. But this is why I think it's really important that we, our politicians and our government don't fuel this rhetoric mm. and don't make statements like we saw two of our ministers making before yeah. the violence yeah. about foreigners stealing jobs and about how they should share their secrets. Because they're the ones which, they're the people who get into the newspapers, whether they're community newspapers or, you know, front page of Sunday papers. They're the ones who, who really direct mm. the way we talk about foreigners and, you know, the, what, from their lips it ends up on the streets of our local communities. And Oof. that's why we really need to hold those people accountable for inflammatory statements, which can have devastating consequences, you know, on our streets. I mean, absolutely. And I think that's where organizations like Africa Check can play a really big role. So one is getting studies like this out into society. And secondly is, is holding our leaders accountable is when they come and say they are stealing their jobs and so on, that there's a counter to say, listen, no, these are the facts. These are the numbers. And what you're saying is irresponsible. Mm. Definitely. Absolutely. Kate, thank you so much for her, for coming on the show. I would love to connect you with some of the guys at Africa Unite and see how we can get your micro level work and some of their community based work um, sort of working together. But thanks for coming on. That's that sounds fantastic. Thank you so thank much you for having pleasure. me. Thanks, Kate. I think we're just about to go into the break. I think we have, is it Casper? Nope, we're going with AKA Duncan. There we go. One of my favorite songs and what luckily won an award at the music awards the other day. We got Tiki Tiki Remix. We'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Right, there we have Duncan with the Tiki Tiki Remix. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching Gershwell about that Kwaito is back. <laughs> 
Sounded good, man. There we Sounded go. Brilliant. Okay, so we're just about to go to Daily Maverick, um, Africa correspondent Simon Allison, who's, I'm not sure if he's in Lesotho or he's back in Joburg. Simon, where are you? We are, we're just returning home from Mesero at the moment. Okay, you sound quite happy to be back. Oh, it's always good to come home, but we had a good time. We, we enjoyed it. Yeah, I want to hear about it. So, I mean, do we have a final a final winner announced in the elections? What's going on? What we have is the election results are in. Okay. So, the, the, the way the city works is, is it's constituency-based. The 80 seats in Parliament are elected by constituency, and then the, the remaining 40 seats are given by proportional representation. So, mm-hmm. we know about the constituency seats, and we know that the, the ruling party. The ABC, the City Congress, they have the most of the constituency seats. But working out the proportional representation, which the Electoral Commission is doing now, we've done our own calculation, mm. and it looks like the um, main opposition, which is the Democratic Congress, yeah. that with their coalition allies, the, the LCD and a few other small ones, they're going to have just about enough to secure a majority government. Wow, how is this being? How is this news being received on the ground? Do you have a sense of how people are, are, are taking the results as they come in? You know, it, it, Masero has been very calm, very relaxed. Mm. It's been quite interesting because a lot of journalists uh, from South Africa came to Masero this time around, looking for the the violence and the conflict which some people had been expecting, talking about tensions boiling over and that kind of thing. And we really haven't seen any of that. Um, the relations between the parties has actually been very cordial. There was a huge rally yesterday by mm-hmm. the Democratic Congress through the streets of Missouri, and it was quite, quite very colorful. Um, lots of red cars with people standing on the back cheering. And when they passed a few ABC supporters, you know, they joked and smiled. It was a friendly rivalry. So what that sort of tells us is that the problems in Lesotho are not really to do with the political parties themselves or the, or the people themselves. It's really sort of that very high-level people jostling for power and trying to use the institutions of state in their own favor. Simon, can I just ask you there quickly, we know that uh, our deputy, Mr. Ramaphosa, paid a visit to Lesotho recently. Uh, do you think that he had any, you know, any dealings in that one where he said, well, guys, you better behave because South Africa's stability is also dependent on you guys. And if things go wrong, we might not have a very friendly response and therefore you need to behave this time around. Absolutely, Gershaw. I think uh, I think Cyril just uh, came and played the big man. Um, he was sort of there, and he, was, he came back and forward a few times from the series during the course of the time that we were there. Mm. And what I think he was doing was, was sort of, his presence there was saying, hey, guys, don't mess around, because if you mess around with me, then you mess around with South Africa. And the city simply can't afford to mess around with South Africa. The mm. power that South Africa has in that country is actually enormous, you know. If we decided one day to close the borders, we would destroy the country's economy in a second. So I think any potential leader knows that they're so reliant on South Africa, they can't afford to, to piss us off. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, that's something that came across when we had the, the, the what was being called an attempted coup in August. So I'm, I'm curious to see or hear from you. What do you think happens now if we have what it sounds like Metzing and Mosesili in a in a in a coalition and ha- and them controlling the government in that sense, how does it work when one party has the, the the police force and one party has the army behind them? Is it possible to have stability after this election? It's going to be difficult. It's, a, it's going to be very difficult. What we're seeing is basically a repeat of the last election, 
which gave a tiny majority to the ABC. This time, it's the BC that will have a tiny majority yeah. with a fractious ruling coalition that they're going to have to appease with ministerial seats and various favors here and there. Now, what we start wondering is, is, is this a flaw in this future's electoral system? You know, this idea where you have a lot of parties that, mm. that then sit in Parliament and then Parliament elects Prime Minister. It's very British. It's not the more... Um, South Africa follows a, a similar system. It's not the sort of direct presidential election mm. that you see in other parts of Africa, in the States, for example. And perhaps that might be a path to, to more stability. We were talking yesterday to the Vice-Chancellor of the National University of the Future, yeah. and he's a constitutional law expert, and he said the electoral system is a problem because it gives nobody a clear mandate to rule. And that means that all the politicians are simply jostling for power for themselves, first and foremost, rather than one politician achieving power and then actually taking some time to rule the country. Mm. I mean, it sounds like we're in a perpetual state of, of, of elections now. And do you see Tsabane conceding, conceding to not being the prime minister? Is that something that you think he, he will accept as incumbent? I think so. Um, the sort of support that we've got about Tsabane is that he's, he's a good guy with and, and you know trying to make change. I think that he will accept the results of the election because, by and large, they have been free and fair. And everyone, all of the, the observers who were there said, you know, these have been good elections. There hasn't been any funny business. And the, the end result is, with the coalition, the D.C. will have the most seats and the most votes, and therefore they have a democratic mandate of sorts, even though it is by the slimmest of margins. Okay, and, and I think one thing, and this is probably me being cynical now, I mean, Mosesili had been the Prime Minister previously, and I think it's fair to say we didn't see too much development in the Sutu, with still um, the life expectancy issues they've had there and, and, the, and the levels of poverty. So can we expect more of the same from Mosesili should he come out as a Prime Minister? Yeah, basically, no, no change is expected from the Sutu in the near future with Mosesili as Prime Minister. And really, he is a big part of the problem as an individual. You know, he ruled, he ruled the city for, what, 15 years as prime minister. Then he had a two, he was out of office for about a year and a half when yeah. all the coup stuff happened. And he was the main mover and shaker behind getting the coup to happen. And what he wanted was fresh elections because he knew he could that the electoral dynamics had changed slightly and he could get himself back in power. So he really has been the major problem in the city's instability. And now it's a, it's a double-edged sword now, because now that he's back in power, I think we can expect more stability. We can expect there to be no violence around the elections because Tabani is more likely to proceed gracefully. Yeah. So that's the good thing. But then the bad thing is he's back in power, and we know he has a track record of not doing very much with it. I mean, that's quite worrying. I know you, you did some work at the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, Simon, and I think there's still this issue of, of African uh, presidents and, and prime ministers who, who want to be presidents for life and prime ministers for life and just won't, won't concede power. Yes, it is, it is absolutely a problem. And, and the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, you just said they managed to award their time um, at the beginning of this week to the former Namibian president, Pohamba, which is mm. a nice thing. Um, as Musa Sili will certainly not be up for that award anytime soon. <laughs> but yes, so this idea that, that power lasts a long time is, is really dangerous for the continent and it's something we need to address. 
I mean, it's really worrying. And we have the army and the, and the, and the police not aligned to the positions of the commander in chief, but aligned to individuals and saying, listen, we are the army. We support this person. We are the police. We support this person. And we have these entire sort of ministries and, and arms of the state aligned to individuals. And, and, and that's really dangerous. Yes, um, the, the, the police and the army are really problematic in this situation because they, uh, they've really been trying to play politics rather than just obey um, the, the sort of executive branch or obey the government. So they've been doing their own thing. But most have said in the wake of these elections that they will uh, uh, promise to observe the results and they will promise to obey whoever emerges as the winner. So let's really hope that that comes through because otherwise we're in deep trouble. Oh, man, absolutely. I mean, Simon, I know you need to get back on your journey, so I'll say a big thank you for, for calling in and, and coming to us live from almost near Maseru. Thanks a lot, Simon. Thanks for having us. Okay, perfect. We'll continue to watch the Lesotho elections and see how it all comes together. Um, we're really hoping for stability in that country, not only because of the strategic importance to South Africa, but just I think as Africans, Gashwa, we, we want to see the continent prosper and we want to see democracy being embraced. And we, we want development and, and surely we, you know, we can't hang on to this quote-unquote dark continent stereotype and we, we want to prove that we can move forward. It's so true. And I mean, and, and you know, a lot of, in a lot of instances, uh, a lot of, you know, the other interesting debate that keeps on coming up. Yeah. And yeah, you know, maybe I'm, I'm punting my, you know, today's column. Okay, there <laughs> we go. Is the perpetual uh, comparisons that we're making today uh, between ourselves, whether it be as South Africa to the rest of the world or sort of con- on a continental level. Yeah. And notions like human rights, democracy, all these things, you know, there's always one clever guy that's going to call in, or lady that's going to call in and say, these are imports from the West. And that is why we can't handle it. That's why we don't know how to do it. It's not ours. Right. But my point is, you know, in the year 2015, there's not a single African country that is forced to apply a certain form of governance. You know, Saudi Arabia, for example, is a monarchy. And the U.S. is very comfortable with them, and many other countries are very, very comfortable with them. And the reason is because they do things their way, you know. And, uh, yeah, human rights violations and the list continues, but, um, yeah, well, they have enough leverage to keep the world loyal, so to speak. You know, maybe it's one of those things. But I, I don't understand it. I mean, if you're going to apply a system of democracy, yeah. if you're going to put together a Bill of Rights that gives people rights, and, and you say that this is our constitution, and these are the liberties that we offer human beings, why can't you stick to it, man? Just stick to it. Why is it that now suddenly, Mr. Mugabe, you decide that, you know what, stuff it. 1980 till the day I die. That's how I'm going to run things here. And you know what, no matter what happens to Zimbabwe or any other country, you know, surrounding me, I am going to run no stuff because what. I am the big boss. I mean, I think it's, I think there's an issue of also aid tying in here. So the, the question is, why are you doing this? And I, I think there's also, there was a, there was a move, I think between the eighties and the nineties where aid was being tied to governance and aid. Mm. So you almost had to sit and be like, yeah, we promise you've got democracy. We promise you've got, you know, an independent judiciary. And the second you say that you get the aid money, you know, in the bank account mm. and then you can steal it. So I think that, that there is a conversation here about the impact of aid and, 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 and I know Dambisa Moyo has a great book, Dead Aid, about that. So, Maybe we'll get her in studio one of these days. But my question then is, is that really, I mean, all these people are liberators. Let's go back to the Mugabe yeah. instance, right? 1979, he comes back to Zimbabwe from Britain after sealing what they call the Lancaster House Agreement. Yeah. And everyone meets this guy, greets him as a great leader. Yeah. And that's what catapults him into power. 1980, he takes over a free Zimbabwe, right? Surely you were in it for the people. 
You know, there was something that said to you, like, I want to liberate my people. I want to see them free and happy. What happened to that dream, supposedly, you know, a few years down? That's why I think Madiba, that's why Madiba was the leader that he was. Because he said, guys, you know, I need one time. Up till a point, and that's, that's where my dream One time, and then I'm going. And no, every, you know, most of the other blocks, whether we're looking at Lesotho, Zimbabwe, we're looking at the rest of Africa, guys are just, you know, they're holding on to power. It's, and they're creating dynasties in some instances where you have a president and his son succeeds him. Never heard of this stuff before, except obviously the Bushes, you know, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> that's one exception to the rule. But I mean, where you literally create a dynasty where there's a succession plan as if uh, you, you're a monarch. I don't know. It's Absolutely. It sounds like we need to we need to have just a whole show on governance. We'll get some of the guys from Mo Ibrahim and hopefully Simon will be in studio. But I think that's all we have time for today. Gosh, well, thanks so much for joining me in studio. A big Always thank you also to everybody we called out to. That's Brilliant from Africa Check, Kate Wilkinson from, no, Brilliant from <laughs> Africa Unite, Kate Wilkinson from Africa Check, and of course Simon and Becky from the Daily Maverick. That's all we have time for. Uh, we'll see you next week. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.